This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, the debate over extractive industries in Latin America and the indigenous communities affected by them. We'll look at Guatemala and Peru. But first, Megan Hamill is away this week, so Alyssa Pacheco has a review of news from around Latin America. Conservative candidate Oscar Zuluaga beat President Juan Manuel Santos during the first round of Colombia's elections. Zuluaga won by a four-point margin. He presents himself as a hardliner who's backed by tough-talking former President Álvaro Uribe. During his victory speech, Zuluaga said that Colombia's president should not be manipulated by rebel group the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. The FARC and the Colombian government are involved in peace talks in Cuba. We can't let the FARC pretend to command the country from Havana. While campaigning, Zuluaga said he won't continue negotiations unless the FARC declare a permanent ceasefire. But this week, Zuluaga shifted gears. He now says the FARC would have to agree to several other conditions, including a time limit for ending the peace talks. Santos and Zuluaga go head-to-head once more on June 15th in a final runoff for president. The U.S. Congress wants President Barack Obama to start listing Venezuelans linked to human rights abuses, in light of the Venezuelan government's crackdown on protesters. The House of Representatives approved a bill this week that would freeze the U.S. assets of Venezuelans named on this list. Venezuelan officials reacted with hostility. They accused the U.S. ambassador to Colombia of working with opposition leaders in a plot to kill President Nicolas Maduro, but they offered little proof of these accusations. The leader of Mexico's leftist Zapatista rebels suggested that he's retiring. Or is it just a name change? Subcomandante Marcos read a statement in Chiapas, asserting that his militant persona is no longer necessary. Thus, we have decided that Marcos will no longer exist as of today. The written statement was posted to his website and concluded with the following. My name is Galeano, Subcomandante Insurgent Galeano. This is the same name of a Zapatista rebel who was recently killed by a rival indigenous group. Some believe that Marcos was the alias adopted by a university professor who went militant in 1994 when he led an indigenous uprising in Chiapas. But he has never confirmed his real identity and shows only a masked face to the public. The Mexican government identifies Marcos as Rafael Guillén Vicente, whose sister is the former attorney general in the state of Tamaulipas. For Latin Pulse, I'm Elisa Pacheco. Last week, as this program was going online, word came to us that the Guatemalan government was moving forcibly against indigenous protesters. Indigenous groups have used nonviolent means to block the road to the El Tambor mine in the La Puya region for more than two years. But this week, a U.S. mining company moved heavy machinery past the protesters. The government says no one was injured after the police used tear gas to disperse the crowd. But protesters say at least 20 people were injured. Recently, we interviewed Kelsey Alford-Jones and Rob Mercatante of the Guatemala Human Rights Commission about such projects that pit companies seeking resources against indigenous groups 
living in environmentally sensitive zones like La Puya. One of the things that the uh, Guatemala Human Rights Commission works most on is accompanying human rights defenders. And by human rights defenders, we mean those that are taking a stand uh, to defend uh, basic human rights such as clean water, clean air, uh, indigenous rights, land rights. Um, and during the last three years in particular, we've seen a terrible increase in the amount of attacks on human rights defenders, specific, specifically in, dose area, in two areas. Um, in one of them, uh, truth and justice, uh, seeking reparations for crimes that were committed during the internal armed conflict. Uh, second, though, are, so, so let me let me ask specifically sure. about that. Are we are we talking about the Rio Negro massacre? Or? Rio Negro, uh, the genocide case against General Efrain Rios Montt, former dictator. Um, but the other side of the coin is, are those that are defending uh, land rights and the environment. And this is a sector that, especially in recent years, has come under attack um, for their defense of water air, environment, the health of their families, the health of their communities. And the reason why they've suddenly come under attack is because of the, uh, the arrival of transnational, uh, especially mining corporations, but also hydroelectric dams and single crop plantations, um, uh, monocultivos they're called in Spanish, which are African palm and, and sugar cane. And it's with the arrival of these uh, transnational corporations with an imposed model of development that the communities are having to form in uh, basically resistance movements in order to defend the environment and their land. So we have um, some um, mining corporations, both from the United States and from Canada, That's working correct. in Guatemala. Um, I'm sure I'll mispronounce, but uh, one of the dam projects is it the the Shalala Dam. Shalala. Okay, and and so in those areas, um, can you? help us with the geography of where where we are is are we in the central highlands or is it all over guatemala it really is all over guatemala and this is what's made our our work as uh, defenders of human rights defenders uh human rights defenders so difficult uh because those defending human rights in the past have traditionally been working on certain issues uh, but with the arrival of these these companies uh, these transnational, like I said, mostly Canadian, also U.S. corporations, but also the hydroelectric dams. Uh, a lot of them have their uh, offices in in Europe, uh, Spain uh, in particular. With the arrival of these companies, uh, we're seeing conflicts breaking out throughout the country. Well, one of the resistance movements that we've been supporting the most um, is, in part, well, there were a number of different reasons why we support them, um, is, a res is a resistance movement called La Puya. And it's located actually not too far from Guatemala City itself. Uh, one of the things that we most respect about the movement is their thorough embracing of a Gandhi-esque form of nonviolent resistance. What they've basically done is formed a human roadblock to keep mining machinery from moving into the uh, into their communities and opening and starting the mining process. Another reason why we as JHRC are so interested in in this particular project is because the uh, parent company is a U.S. Uh, mining company called Caps Cassidy and Associates, a Reno, Nevada-based company, and so we feel again as a uh, a U.S.-based human rights organization that we have a particular a responsibility to follow through and, um, and accompany the, the communities in, in their nonviolent resistance 
again, it's defensive water and clean air. Um, and has the digging construction work begun on the mine yet or not? Very basic infrastructure had already begun before the community was even aware that the mining company was in their communities. And this is gets to kind of the heart of the problem with these mining projects is that there is no consultation that happens previously. Um, the community's will, the community uh, isn't taken into account. The communities in, in many cases aren't even informed that these mining projects are moving into their communities. They find out about it, and in the case of La Puya, with the arrival of heavy machinery and engineers. And so a certain amount of base work had already happened before the communities were aware that this massive gold mine, the silver mine, was about to, uh, to start operations in their backyard. And we've then seen also authorities come in to back up the mining companies, yes? Right. And this is, uh, again, the problem with human rights uh, violations in Guatemala is, again, the responsibility of the state. And you can either say it's the state by commission or omission that is leaving these communities vulnerable uh, by not giving them, uh, by not protecting their rights, by not providing the state support for the community's um, constitutional right, as a matter of fact, to resist uh, these imposed development projects. Uh, the state uh, commits grave violations of human rights. And in the case of the Puya, this has turned in, this has resulted in basically the arrival of, of massive amounts of riot police on a number of different occasions to try to physically break with this nonviolent resistance. Shock troops, even. Let me bring Kelsey Alfred Jones into the conversation. Um, Romer Catante goes down and represents your organization in Guatemala. You do a lot of work here in D.C. As he's just said, the state is responsible for violence in these communities. What is the message that you send forth here from Washington to deal with that? Well, I think it's a a message that is both a message of support for the communities and their right to be in opposition, their right to defend their land, their water. It's also a message to the Guatemalan government. Um, There are certain laws, both national laws as well as international laws and conventions that Guatemala has signed on to that they must abide by, and they're not doing so. Um, One of the most uh, cited is International Labor Convention uh, 169, organization uh, ILO 169, which says that indigenous communities specifically have the right to free prior informed consent about projects that will be carried out on their land and that will affect um, their livelihood. Guatemala is a signer on that convention, and Guatemala in no case has done effective consultation with communities. And in that absence, communities have come together and done a series of good faith consultations, what they're um, calling them, consultas de buena fe. And this started in 2005 in the community of Sipacapa around the Marlin mine, which has been the most controversial mine uh, in Guatemala to date. And communities, uh, I think almost uh, almost 100 at this point, um, have come together across Guatemala and done Uh, these consultations, community referendums, and in all of those cases, the result has been 99, 99 99.9% of the community members that are voting saying, we oppose this project. And it's the Guatemalan government, uh, Guatemalan government's responsibility um, to be consulting its population. And if it's not going to do it, then they need to be respecting the consultations that are happening at the community level. The Guatemalan Constitutional Court ruled that those consultations were non-binding 
but there has been nothing proposed to take its place. Um, and the one time that they did try to move forward some legislation, they did so with zero consultation with the communities, which, uh, again, is kind of a re-victimization of the, the most vulnerable communities in Guatemala. And I think it's important to note that in a lot of these areas where there are valuable minerals are areas where they're indigenous regions, they're um, very poor communities, they're communities that live off the land, and that when their land is usurped by a large transnational corporation um, when they no longer have the ability to farm or when their water is polluted or their land is polluted, they literally lose the ability to provide for their family. And so it's, it becomes a question not just of whether you support a mining project or don't, but whether you'll have the ability to, to live and survive. So it's a, it's a very um, important and uh, dramatic subject in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. And so our message to the Guatemalan government is, you know, one, you need to obey your own laws at the national level, and two, you're legally obligated by your own constitution to implement and abide by international rulings um, that you've signed on to in international conventions, and all of which say these communities have the right not only to be in opposition, um, but to say no and, and to be able to protect their land and their livelihoods. Rob, did you have something to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. that uh this also touches on a real taboo subject in Guatemala, which is racism. And the idea, uh, I think the vision of, of the government and a lot of these uh, uh, businesses, a lot of these corporations is we know better than the indigenous people. So we're bringing development to these poor communities and their opposition is based on ignorance. When you speak to the community members, however, you realize, especially in the Mayan world vision, how important the relationship to the land is. It's more than just an economic relationship. It's a spiritual relationship. It's an ancestral relationship. And so when you have these uh, these government officials, it, it's, it's infuriating to hear the, the arguments where they try to justify, again, uh, making error, error you know, quotes here, these development projects, these, these pseudo-development projects, which are really, um, you know, big holes in the earth that will last 20 years, provide a certain amount of income, uh, a minimal amount of income for the Guatemalan government, and yet leave the land uh, contaminated. The, the, the water that the families depend on for drinking and farming and bathing and washing and contaminated. Uh, and so for me, it's, the communities have a much better view, especially long, long view. I mean, they're talking millennium kind of view of relationship to the land, and that's what they're protecting here. It's not that they're anti-development. It's not necessarily that they're anti-mining in general. They're pro-land, pro-earth, and... Uh, and it's this racist view, I think, that's imposed where it says, we know better than you what you need. When you look at the projects that have been implemented, implemented in Guatemala and what, uh, what that brings to the local community, that hasn't brought uh, development. There haven't been infrastructural reforms. There haven't been better schools. There haven't been better health centers. Um, in one particular case from the uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, the Chicxoy Hydroelectric Dam, which is the largest energy project in Guatemala, provides like 70% of the energy for the country. The communities, not only were they massacred in the context of the internal armed conflict, uh, displaced, uh, tracked down, forced to live in a, in a community uh, guarded by the military, but now moving back, they, those 33 communities have no access to electricity, living on top of a hydroelectric dam that provides the vast majority of electricity for the country. And that pattern is something that we see replicated across the country. The communities where these projects are taking place 
are not benefiting from those projects. It's very clear that the benefits go straight to either the national government, the pockets of local officials, or the benefits are exported to the international community um, as they traditionally have in Guatemala over the last couple hundred years. Thank you so much, Rob Mercatante and Kelsey Alford-Jones of the Guatemala Human Rights Commission, our guests today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Following on our theme this week of the conflicts between extractive industries and indigenous communities, we invited Andrew Miller of Amazon Watch to our studios. Here are excerpts from our conversation about environmental issues in the Peruvian Amazon. Um, We in particular focus on supporting indigenous peoples. We can talk more about that. So we think about things in terms of threats to to the rights and the the survival of indigenous peoples. Um, Environmental organizations also talk a lot about what we call drivers of deforestation. So there are different kinds of factors um, that are contributing to the deforestation around the Amazon or or any rainforest. And fundamentally, you know, we can look at a number of different manifestations um, throughout the Peruvian Amazon, but fundamentally, I would say kind of the biggest threat are, are market forces, essentially, are um, the demand for commodities, the demand for natural resources, and related infrastructure which is being built. So, you know, we can look at, and, and we can talk more about oil and gas, um, uh, sort of exploration and extraction that's going on around there. So the extractive industries <clears throat> are really the big threat. The extractive industries are one of the big threats, definitely. And, and so I mentioned oil and gas is one of them. Uh, of course, well, right now the price of gold has... Uh, well, it's quadrupled between 1999 and, and 2012. It's come down a little bit, but it's still uh, still really high. And it, that's definitely driving a tremendous amount of, of destruction around the Amazon and other places, uh, primarily in what we call informal gold mining or illegal gold mining. But actually in Peru, it's quite extraordinary. What is nominally called informal is actually happening at an industrial scale. Uh, and in the southern uh, Peruvian province of Madre de Dios, I mean, there's huge areas that have been destroyed by this sort of informal. And the government has really taken up this banner, and they're really focusing a lot on this illegal industry, which is important. And, and they're definitely, in, within the drivers of deforestation, you do have a number of illegal uh, activities going on, the illegal gold mining, the illegal logging that's happening, and then also, to some degree, coca production. Um, but at the same time, you also have a lot of legally sanctioned activities um, often for which there are concessions, the government essentially leases out different areas of the of the rainforest for for different kinds of of companies, and you know certainly oil and gas concessions. There are mining concessions, although in Peru most of the mega mining is happening up in the in the mountain areas, um, and then you also have forestry concessions. So a lot of these activities, there's kind of a legal component and an illegal component. Certainly within the logging sector, there's a very strong interaction between ostensibly what's happening legally. So the permits, the legal permits that are often that are issued are often used to to launder uh, wood that's cut illegally in other places. And there just unfortunately isn't really the the 
the sort of forest governance and the control and the management that there really needs to be in order to, to stem the tide in that case of illegal logging. Let's talk a little bit about illegal logging in, in a bit. But I would like to talk about this issue of the the illegal gold mining that's going on. Earlier this month, there was a, a mine collapse. Uh, numerous uh, miners were trapped in an illegal gold mine. And and so um, what, what are the environmental impacts of, of these gold mines, especially in the illegal sense? They're, they're not permitted. Nobody's watching what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, well, a lot of people are watching what they're doing because it's happening out in the open. It's quite extraordinary. I was actually, my wife and I went to Puerto Maldonado in Madre de Dios a number of years ago, and we were just there on, on tourism. And we went, you know, as we left the city uh, and we went down the river, uh, you know, the, the kind of gold mining operations were just evident. Um, and so there's a whole series of different kinds of, of negative environmental impacts. I mean, in part, uh, the, the gold miners are going after the riverbanks. And so they have these huge, these, these barges with very high-powered uh, hoses, essentially. And they're just washing out the riverbanks, which are incredibly sensitive. I mean, these rivers are tremendously sensitive ecologically. Um, so that on one hand, and then of course... <clears throat> so that's erosion and they're denuding the banks. Absolutely. And then, you know, there's whole other areas that are deforested. And in recent months, there have been these uh, images that have essentially gone viral online of these these research planes that have flown over these areas. And it's just absolutely shocking the degree of, you know, it's like the rainforest is essentially turned into sort of a desert-like area. There's that kind of an impact, but then, of course, the gold mining process itself uses incredibly toxic chemicals. It uses mercury, it uses cyanide in order to, 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 uh, to, to, to isolate the gold from everything else. And so these are, these are chemicals that go straight into the water and then they bioaccumulate. So, uh, you know, in, in, and end up in the fish and then people are eating the, those fish, et cetera, or they're drinking the water or they're bathing in that water, et cetera. Um, so this brings us back to the indigenous communities. That those are the communities where the bioaccumulation is is key, is it not? Uh, I mean, certainly. I mean, but I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily uh, limit it to indigenous communities. But certainly, the degree to which right community members are directly dependent on fishing from the river for a major source of their protein, for example. But you can also imagine that non-indigenous people living downriver who are also eating a lot of the fish that's produced locally. Um, or are you know somehow you know drinking any or using any of the water that they're also affected by that too? Um, it's definitely the mining question is very controversial because to some degree you know well there's a long history of gold mining and some of which is actually sustainable. Uh, so when you unfortunately when you kind of paint with a broad brush and just say all you know informal mining is off limits, there's there's certainly kind of legitimate sustainable ways of doing gold mining. And there's some communities that depend on that too. So it's not, it's not an entirely black and white issue. Let's talk about the illegal logging that you mentioned. How big of a problem is that? Well, uh, it's, I mean, it's certainly one that's gotten a certain amount of attention recently. A number of colleague organizations, um, some of which are based here in Washington, D.C., have issued a number of very interesting reports about that. There's actually a report that just came out um, by our colleagues at the Amazon Conservation Association, uh, my friend and colleague uh, Matt Finer, and then that was co-authored by CL, the Center for International Environmental Law. And then several years ago, the Environmental Investigation Agency did a fantastic report that anyone who's interested in <laughs> illegal logging in Peru absolutely has to see that. It's called The Laundering Machine, and it really lays out how, you know, how it is exactly that these permits are essentially 
you know, secured and they're tra- they're transferred on the black market and then they're used. Um, but I read a statistic that essentially 80% of wood products coming out of Peru are are illegally sourced. So it's a huge issue. Um, you know, again, unfortunately, in part because of, of just lack of capacity on the part of the government, perhaps in some ways lack of, of political will, and then there's a high degree of corruption also that happens at a local level. Um, you know, a lot of the logging that's happening, it's not even really clear necessarily where the, where the logs come from. Uh, there was also a really good article in the New York Times that was published last year that went into detail, and I th- it actually tracked uh, a guy who'd worked for the government and who was like a, an inspector, essentially, and kind of talked about all the challenges. I mean, for the people who actually care about these issues, who work for the government and want to want to address them, uh, all the obstacles that they run into and kind of, the, you know, what they're pushing for is not very welcome. Uh, they don't get a lot of support from the government. And then there's a lot of opposition and, and threats and attempts to buy them off, et cetera. So it's a huge challenge. Thank you so much. Andrew Miller of Amazon Watch, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. The next Summer of the Americas is scheduled for next year in Panama. Not much has yet been done to define an agenda or otherwise prepare for this seventh meeting since 1994 of the Western Hemisphere's heads of state. The dominant question at this point is whether the summit will take place at all. Most Latin American and Caribbean governments are not ready to backtrack on their threat to boycott the summit if Cuban President Raul Castro is not on the invitation list. They remain committed to reincorporate Cuba, despite its repressive authoritarian regime, into hemispheric affairs. This is the one issue that unites an otherwise politically divided region. The Cuban president this year was selected to preside over the community of Latin American Caribbean states, a newly formed organization that incorporates every summit participant except Canada and the U.S. The summit could be saved if the U.S. agreed to accommodate the will of their 33 hemispheric neighbors by accepting Cuba's participation. And why not? The U.S. and Cuba regularly participate together in a variety of United Nations activities, and Washington routinely meets with many other despotic governments. Still, U.S. politics makes this solution highly improbable. Any accommodation of Cuba will meet fierce resistance in Congress, including from Robert Menendez, the head of the powerful Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and other influential Cuban-Americans. The summit is just not considered important enough for the White House to put at risk higher priority, more urgent items on its foreign policy agenda. The suspension of the summit process would be one more blow to already shaky inter-American relations. It would further debilitate the organization of American states long the bedrock institution of hemispheric affairs. It would inevitably result in the continued drifting apart of the U.S. and Latin America and their loss of a common regional identity. There is no obvious resolution to this impasse over the summit. It just may have to be postponed for some time. But it should call attention to the need for a more multilateral approach to Cuba 
and other sensitive issues in U.S.-Latin American relations. Washington's lonely crusade against Cuba has failed for half a century to bring political change to the island, while alienating most other countries in the region. The U.S. will need Latin America's cooperation and support to play a constructive role in Cuba's political future. Among skeptical Latin Americans, it will take time to build that cooperation, but little will be accomplished without it. The opinions of Peter Hakem are his own and are not the official views of this program. If you would like to respond to our Latin American Perspectives commentary or any part of this program, please write us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may contact us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're interested in more commentary, please check out the AULA blog. This week, there's a commentary on energy integration in Latin America. You can find the blog at AULABlog, all one word, dot net. That's AULABlog, dot net. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Alyssa Pacheco, and announcer Victor Kilo. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions.